Welcome to Off the Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera. In each episode, I sit down with a member of the water polo community to speak with them about what helped make them successful in the world of water polo. In this episode, I sit down with Ricardo Azevedo, the head technical director of Brazilian water polo. If you enjoy the episode, do me a favor, leave a five-star review or share it with your friends. And if you want to support the show, you can go to offthedeckpodcast.com and donate to the program. Thank you very much. All right. I'm sitting here at Orange Lutheran High School with um, really a legend, uh, someone that I've looked up to for a very, very long time, um, former national team coach, former high school coach, former college coach, professional coach, national team coach, um, Ricardo Azevedo. So thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. We go back a, a long way. Um, and I've always looked up to everything you do. So uh, thanks again for being here. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure being here. And it's always good to talk about the growth of the sport. Absolutely. So I wanted to, you know, re- really briefly get into um, how you got started in coaching water polo. Um, I know you're Brazilian and, and you played, obviously. Um, how did you get involved with the coaching part of water polo? You know, as, as most athletes, of course, you know, once you achieve, um, you know, a few accolades and stuff, you always think about, like, maybe I want to go into coaching. Yeah. Um, after I graduated, after I finished college, um, I went back to Brazil and I worked in a marketing firm. I worked in a pharmaceutical industry. And after about a year, I hated it. <laughs> I really couldn't stand it. I did not like the business world. And I remember talking to my dad and my brothers and I said, you know what? What I really like to do is coach. And so I came back to the United States, and Tony, of course, was born in Brazil, so that's why he was born in Brazil. Uh, he, we came back here when he was about 17, 20 days old, wow. and uh, I was able to get a job at St. John Bosco High School. It was my first uh, coaching job as a head coach, and I fell in love with it. From that point on, that's all I wanted to do in my life is coach. Wow. So St. John Bosco, that's, that's interesting. I never knew that, actually, and being in the Trinity League now here with Orange Lutheran. Uh, we see them obviously every year, and Jeff Powers is the coach there, uh, former Olympian. Um, so, after St. John Bosco, did you go to? Were you living in Long Beach, or were you living in the area? When I came back, you know, we the kids, of course, it was Tony was just a baby, and uh, so but we moved immediately to Long Beach. Uh, we were in Long Beach pretty much the whole time. I never lived there, never left the area. Yeah. Um, and so at San Juan Bosco was great because they were, you know, being right there, Bellflower. I mean, yeah. I could just go down the street and it was a 15 minute drive every day, but it was just amazing. I met some amazing people there. Uh, I was very blessed that at the time I had quite a few coaches there that, you know, we were able to grow together. It was a very young program, but yeah. we had a lot of success that year, not just in water polo, but in a lot of sports. So I felt that. Bosco kind of went to a renewal process at that point, and I was part of it, and that was actually very nice. Yeah, and then so after that, you ended up, you landed at Long Beach Wilson. Um, what led you to that opportunity? And, I mean, if for those of you who don't know, for the listeners who don't know, I mean, obviously you had a legendary run at Long Beach Wilson with some of the greatest players who ever played in the United States. Um, when, how did you land at Long Beach Wilson? Well, when I was at St. John Bosco High School, at the same time I started there, within a year, I was also coaching Beach at the time. You know, and Beach, of course, at the time was uh, Tim Shaw was coaching the swimming part of it and Klaus Barth. And then on the water polo part of it, it was myself. 
And so we were, I was working on beaches. So I work with a lot of the Wilson athletes. Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of the area athletes. I've actually worked a little bit with the Millican guys. Um, so I always had a tremendous love for the area. You know, they really have embraced me when I moved here from Brazil. So mm -hmm. I had that. So after St. John Bosco uh, finish, um, I basically was kind of in transition. I felt that I needed to, you know, move on. Um, you know, I, I always looking for challenges, so I was I needed to move on. So I went to Millican actually, and um, we I had a stint in Millican where I helped Coach Brown at the time for one year, and because I wasn't sure what yeah. I was going to do at that time, to yeah. be honest. Um, you know, I was teaching and I was coaching, and then I had a few other things in my mind. So at that point, Coach Jones, Rick Jones, uh, the, the great coach from Long Beach Wilson for many, many years, well, he decided he retired, and they opened up the job. Uh, I went to see uh, Mr. Larry Brunite, that was the principal at the time, and I went there and I said, you know, hey, um, I'm a Wilson native, so is, you know, everybody in my family, yeah. and um, I would, you know, love to take the job here, and I said, if I don't win within two years, you can fire me. <laughs> And, and that's how I went to Wilson. And that was, what year was, do you remember what year sure. that was? Sure, that was 1989. 1989, okay. So at that and point. And we're in the finals in 1990, and then from that point on, we're in finals every year. Yeah, and I think, you know, going back to the beach thing, when you're working at the mm -hmm. club level um, at beach, I think it's hard for people playing now or parents of players now to understand how revolutionary it was to have age group flourishing in one area like beach and same with socal probably i mean harvard westlake probably um was that something where you know you did you bring that or did you did you see other countries you know you came from brazil did you see other places doing that sort of thing you're trying to bring that into beach or was it something that you just came in and say hey i'll, I'll take a group and i'll coach well, you know, beach, you know, of course, you know, it goes back to where it was Philip 66 in the 70s. It was mostly a swimming club. And as it went up, you know, we're starting to change. And uh, we we wanted to do something that was not just Wilson, you know. So I felt that, you know, it's at the age group level, what's important is not championships. What's yeah. important is fundamentals and learn how to be an athlete. I use the three L's. You learn, you live, you love. And that's what I feel age group should be about. It should not be about championships. So the first thing we did is actually we open up. Hmm. And so instead of being a Wilson program, we had kids from everywhere. And what was nice about it is that we had kids from Los Alamitos, they went on to win a CIF. We had kids from Redondo girls and they went on to win CIF. We had kids like Ornsby and those kind of guys that went on to become Olympians that drove from San Diego to come in and play with us one night wow. or two nights a week. Because the idea is an open door policy. You know, we want not only great athletes to come train with us, but also have the ability to our athletes to train against them. Yeah. And so <clears throat> we never put a lot of emphasis on results. Um, we rarely actually, with JOs, for example, I would allow an athlete to play one JOs, not two. So, example like Tony, his last JOs are when he was 15 years old. Oh, wow. Because I'm like, you should be playing nationals and not going to play JOs because you're not really getting anything from it yeah. except maybe a medal. Yeah. But you're taking the place of two guys that can really get better if they play JOs and you go play nationals where you're going to learn. So, I, I think. 
I not think, I mean, I am absolutely sure that the way to grow age group and to grow programs as it is in some countries is to put emphasis on fundamentals, teaching, loving it, not yeah. burning them out. And hey, if they get a result, great. But who remembers who won the 12 and unders 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah. But and you know, people remember that you went to college or people remember that you had a great career in high school. So to me, age group is about that. So that's what I did at Beach. And then later on, of course, become Shore. Yeah. And we had over 400 members, but our kids came from everywhere. We've never made any distinction. Yeah. And uh, the same thing with coaches, you know, Coach Segesman or Coach Allard and Coach Kareem. I mean, there are so many coaches that have gone through our program. There are now some of the better coaches out there mm-hmm. and growing and with the same mentality, you know, love the sport. And uh, I think that's what's missing. Yeah. And I was just going to kind of shift to that, you know, very quickly. It's clear that you feel that we've lost sight of that in in age group here in the U.S. It's such a machine right now. JOs is massive, massive, massive. The tournaments every month are massive. It's really hard to keep families happy when they want the medal. They don't see the long-term future. It's really, you know, it's really hard to get that across. I think to some families. Yeah, it, this is actually something that it, it really is starting to damage our sport because we're we're achieving success between the ages of thirteen and seventeen, but we're no longer achieving success after that. Uh, you know, we and part of that is that I think we have a little bit of a burnout effect. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when you have tournaments every weekend, um, pretty much. And uh, the tournaments are, in many ways, meaningless games. Uh, I am not a believer in quantity of games. I'm a believer of quality of games. Yeah. You know, so for me to go to a tournament, what I know the first three games are going to win 21 to 5, no, that is not good for us and it's not good for the other team either. I'm a much bigger believer in, you know, let's say divisions, you know, pair them up with teams that are a little bit more closer to their talent skill. I believe you should compete and then take 21 days of training to work on the things that you compete. We know by science that it takes about 21 days for anything to really sink in. We know that physically, we know that mentally. So to me, do you have a tournament every weekend? When do you ever work on the mistakes? Yeah. Because if your tournament finishes on a Sunday and then Monday, you basically almost kind of like a swim down because everybody's so burnt out because they played on Sunday. And then you basically have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then you're preparing for another tournament on Friday. Yeah. So when do you work on your skills? When do you work on some of the things that need to work on? Um, and I mean, I'm I'm an expert in teaching shooting. And I'm telling you right now, I like to break down the motion of a player, and it takes me about three weeks. Then I break it down. Then I'm going to build it up, back up, and it's going to take three sessions of 21 days yeah so it takes about two months for you to get back into what you're going to be that i see as a big problem yeah the second thing and that's something that you know tony and maggie has really brought up through 68 is hey there's no such thing as off season when the season is finished that's the time for you to work on your skills that you did not perform well so it's not off season that all we're going to do is do nothing or swim a little bit and then just play tournaments yeah no you're not learning anything that's just experience of growing up. But how do you work on a different shot? How do you change your position? How, 
one of the things growing up that I did with Tony and I did with most of my players, Adam, and all the players that played for me, I would say this year, on these games, you're going to play on the 1-2 side. On these games, you're going to play on the 4-5 side. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to play in the center. Now I want you to guard. Because that's the time to develop the players. It's from the ages of 12 to 17. By 17 years old, a player should be done. You know, And that's what you see in Europe. We even see that in the NBA, where a 17, 18-year-old European, it's already a pro. Yeah. And the idea is the same here. If I can go ahead and take an athlete from 12 to 17, work fundamentals, work all the varieties of position, work on all the things that he is good at and things that he needs to get better at. At 17 years old, he's ready to go to a college, and he can play right away. Is one of the things that the most proud of it that most of my athletes, when they graduated, they could play as freshmen in college. Yeah. Because they had the skill or the fundamentals to play in college. Yeah, and they were used to competing at a really high level. Like going back to your earlier point, you know, you're going for quality games where they're going to be challenged on a game by game basis rather than, oh, we just won 30 to zero. And some games like that are unavoidable. You know what I mean? First round of the CIF playoffs, you know, there, there was nothing you guys could do about that. But I mean, I, I definitely. I mean, I agree with you. I think the hard part is getting the coaches to all be on the same page, plus having the quality of coaches that are going to be able to take the time and break things down in that nature. So, I mean, that kind of leads me into my next you know, point in terms of how do you feel about the state of international water polo right now? You know, not just from I mean, you're the head of Brazilian water polo, um, so you you were also here as a USA national team coach. Uh, you were also the Chinese women's national team coach. You, you know, so, I mean, talk about a unique perspective. How do you feel the game is going right now? Yeah, I, the good thing is that I, I, I'm very, you know, broad. I mean, I I think very broadly in the sense, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not judgmental when it comes to like, you know, he's good or he's bad. I don't, I don't do that. Yeah. Uh, particularly, as you said, I mean, I've coached the national team of, of China, men, national team of China, women, professional in Italy with the professional leagues, you know, in Brazil. And I've, you know, so I, I've been a junior coach and all the yeah. other stuff. So the idea is that I look at it. Let's look at the let's let's do a clean bill of health over here and what's happening in the international water polo. The golden era of the 1980s really had the sport grow. I mean, U.S. went from 7,000 to about 30,000. I mean, the sports started added everywhere. I yeah. mean, all of a sudden, and it wasn't just at six or seven programs in, 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 in Europe. You know, you saw the, the growth of Greece and in Spain. All these teams, they were, I mean, back in the 70s, these teams were nothing. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they were competing. Part of that is that a group of coaches that started going around the world. I mean, you know... Uh, there was a couple coaches, you know, some some Yugos- at the time Yugoslavia, some Hungarians, some Italians, and the game became more international, you know. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just like that's the Russian school, that's the Spanish school, that's the Italian school, as it was in the sixties and seventies. There was pretty much some strong schools that I could get into detail, yeah. but we don't have enough time. Well, we saw in the eighties, we saw some new kind of programs coming around. I mean, with Yugoslavia and Hungary still being strong. Uh, but Russia and the United States kind of, instead of having, in a sense, uh, following anybody's schools, they kind of modified a little bit. A lot of success between U.S. and Russia during those days, during those years, some of the great players that came out of that era. Yeah. Um, the 90s and the early 2000s saw the game really change. You know, the game became very physical. Uh, the game, some of the rules that were never really, I never really feel that they changed the rules. It's how the interpretation of the rules 
the book has had very little change, if yeah. you really think about it. But the game became more kind of violent. It became more of a physical game. And that, of course, basically made where only three or four teams could really have success. Yeah. You know, this was noticed. And so in the last five or six years, you can see the change back to, let's say, hey, how do we get people back in the stands? How do we get the game to be a little more enjoyable? Because everything gets basically mandated by television and by sponsors. Yeah. Today is all about money. We know that. Well, they're saying, geez, I mean, this game, all we have is six on five all the time. I mean, what happened to natural goals? What happened to counterattack goals? Yeah. I mean, what happened to like little give and go, a little pass, or a little RBs? I mean, those mm-hmm. things, for people that don't know, an RB is a rear back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I mean, what happened to those things? And then, so the change has happened. You know, we have had a massive change in FINA, you know, with a lot of new faces out there, mm-hmm. almost like more than 60% are new. And some of the new people, I, I like their ideas. You know, they're, they're coming up saying, hey, maybe we should listen to the athletes more. Um, I like the idea that they are starting to think about coaches, uh, international coaches certification, mm-hmm. where coaches will have a library of knowledge or somebody that they can get to uh, to basically help because we all need help. Yeah. We can learn every day. And so I can see the change of that. So the international water polo right now is doing well. I mean, LAN, FINA are some of the richest organizations in the world. And so the last world championships, the last Olympic Games were always sold out. There's 10, yeah. 12,000 people watching. There are so many players playing everywhere. Where I feel it's a problem is, is because we're growing so much, you know, and that's the same thing that's happened with JOs, is that when you grow so much, some of the quality is starting to be lost. Because we went from 20 years ago having one world championship, a quadrennium, one Olympic Games, one continental championship, three, to now having four world leagues, two world championships in a quadrennium, a continental championship, a FINA Cup, plus all the professional college and all the other things that yeah. you have. So the athletes have less time for training, so it increases injury. You know, so some of the programs that are coming up now, and there are some good ones uh, to, pr- to prevent. So I feel that it's kind of a like catch-22. The sport is growing at a tremendous amount. I mean, it really is growing. Women's water polo is so important, and it's an amazing game. Yeah. We have some amazing talent in this country, but we also have some amazing players in the world that don't even get the time that they should get. And these people are amazing. They're yeah. incredible, the talent. So we have the athletes growing, we have the sport growing, but we don't have enough coaches. Mm-hmm. We don't have enough coaches. I mean, Texas is adding water polo now, I hear, yeah. as a sport. So all of a sudden, there's 300 high schools. Where do the coaches come from? Yeah. So yeah. what are we doing to help coaches? So FINA is starting this new developer program now that we're going to try to maybe certify some coaches. Again, we should not look at certifications as a way to screen out. Certification is basically to help the coaches. Yeah. So FINA is doing this. WANA is starting to do this. LAN is doing this. And then as the United States, I feel that we need to invest in our coaches. Our coaches need to know that they could call a federation and say, I have some questions on how to train on a counterattack. And, and not say, well, I'll look on the internet, because yeah. that seems to be everybody's answer right now. Yeah, Google it. Exactly. <laughs> but you know what? No. That should be a priority because if we have more coaches that love the sport, 
are knowledgeable, and they want to grow. I see so many young coaches. Last night, I had three on deck asking me questions. Great. I love when they come yeah. because I remember myself doing the same thing. So I feel that that is where we are right now. The sport is growing. Uh, the women's sport is amazing. Uh, the athletes are incredible. But I feel that we need to develop more coaches and give the coaches the ability to develop. And do you think that coaches certification, because I, you know, I, I love that you sort of ex explain that, hey, we're not trying to cut people out here. We, we're trying to include people. Do you think that's something that USA Water Polo needs to be responsible for? Or do you think that's something that us as coaches, especially, I mean, I can consider myself now to be a little bit more of a veteran coach, I've been coaching for 18 years. Is that something that us as veteran coaches should be getting together and say, hey, let's try to do this. I know John Abdu just did something in, in January where the coaches clinic was, it was really a, like a water polo summit, you know, a lot of great feedback. Once a year is obviously not going to be enough, but is it up to us coaches or is it up to the organization of USA Water Polo? What do you think? What I have done in Brazil, I arrived about uh, 12 months ago. You know, I started in January of last year. And so that's the first thing I notice because it's a problem everywhere in the world. So mm -hmm. there's nobody, nobody owns the problem. It's yeah. a problem that's there. And that's the first thing I notice is that we did not have, you know, the athletes are there, the pools are there, the interest is there, but these kids are really plateauing. I mean, they're not really getting better. I mean, I'm seeing a kid, you know, today and I've seen a kid six months later and I see no improvement mm -hmm. at that age group you should see the improvement visibly visibly it's not like when they're 25 or 26 at that age group you see growth you see size you see girth you see yeah. everywhere I know yeah. you're so, talking 12 to 17 still exactly okay, 12 right. 17 is yeah. always the age that we really look at and that's the most important coaches those are your basic coaches I mean if you look at the junior coaches around the world sometimes your national coach change but the junior doesn't yeah. you'll find somebody that's good Fetcho Kemeny was a coach of Hungary for over 30 years in the junior level Bruno Silic you know Fiore from, it, from Italy I mean these guys stay in the junior level. Yeah. Why not? And we if, have a if new a junior. If turning an athlete, why not? Why yeah. are we changing every two years? Yeah, we have a junior coach change every single uh, Let's find years. out who the best fundamental coaches are in this country. Let's put them in a junior level and say, hey, we're going to pay you a little bit more, but you, you, you're there. That's what you do around the country is finding the players and create a pipeline for us to have it upstairs. Yeah. So <clears throat> what I did is what, you know, that I think would work, and it is working. We went from 16 coaches to 91. Okay, wow. what I did is I created a Congress where they basically have to come in. They have to be certified for four days, eight hours a day, where we go over and cover everything from physical preparation, tactics, everything, okay? Then after that, they receive a card, level one, level two, level three. Without that card, they cannot sit on the bench. So they have to have that card in hand for them to sit on the bench. That means that I have gone over with basically behavior, rules, technique, coaching, Mm -hmm. That person is a professional yeah. because people misunderstand the professional doesn't mean you get money. Professional means you own your profession. Mm -hmm. That's what a real professional is. So we do that. The second thing I did is create a council of coaches. So I create a council of coaches that every single coach that coaches a kid now is part of a group. And what I do is every Friday I send a message like, what do you guys think of this? They have 48 hours to discuss. Then I close the topic. Mm. But that creates them the idea that every week they can come up with something. Right. So they can come up with something and say, hey, what do you guys think on this new rule bringing the ball a little bit deeper? 
Yeah. Okay. 48, 48 hours of discussion. People put in in the you know the WeChat or Messenger, whatever you want to use. Yeah. We have the discussion. At the end of the discussion, I come up with kind of a conclusion. Hey, the most of the coaches think of this. Then I contact some coaches around the world, get their opinion also, blend it. That's conversation. That's yeah. discussion. That creates discussion. That creates growth. And I think that's what we have to do. And yes, I do believe that that is a federation's job. A federation's job is to create the best product. That's their mission statement. Yeah. You know, is to create the best product, best teams to compete in Olympic Games at the Pan Am Games and all that stuff. How do you create the best product if you don't have a coach that's going to create that product? Because the product is the athlete. Yeah. So I feel that that is a U.S. water polo um you know, responsibility. And I, I think John, you know, I've talked to him a lot. He's a great guy. Yeah. He does a great job. But I think we need to move away from kind of just clinics are great for athletes, but I think we need more congresses for coaches. Mm -hmm. And then as coaches, I think you guys should unite. You know, you should unite in a sense that says has have a voice that you guys can discuss kind of among yourselves. Maybe you create a Southern California Council, maybe a North California, maybe a, a general um, but I think I think good conversation and good discussions among coaches um, go a long way. Do you think one of the issues with the or the differences between coaching in Brazil and coaching here in the U.S. is that you know if you are born in Rio by Copacabana Beach, you're going to play for Flamingo. Mm -hmm. You're not going anywhere else, mm -hmm. pretty much. If you grow up in Irvine. You have SoCal, Northwood, Set, all these different places that you can go. Do you think that becomes a big barrier for us as coach? Because it's almost like we're all, I mean, we're clearly all competing. You know, it's like we're not all in the same I don't know. And, and with the other countries, like, and I know Brazil because I played with Brazil and uh, with Brazilians, and I actually, a lot of the guys who are thriving right now played in my first South American games, like in 2010 in Medellin. And I mean, believe it or not, I was playing, you know what I mean? Groomy and all these other guys who are just killing it now. But they've all been playing together for so long. Um, and they only change clubs later in life because of the money, I would assume. So is that a big barrier for us? Yeah, you know, Brazil follows the European mode. You know, so just like in Europe, you play for the area where you live. Yeah. And usually you don't have the variety that we have here that one city could have 10 teams. Yeah. You know, there one city might have two or three. And you you play by your neighborhood. Yeah. And you only is going to change after the age of 18. Maybe you're going to get some money. So you might change to one club or the other. Kind of just the same way as Europe. Yeah. I remember when Cupido played for me and Longo played for me and all those. Fondelli played for me. They all played. They're all from Camoli. So they all played for me in Camoli. Once they turn 18 years old, they're going to get picked up by Record. They're going to get picked up by Firenze, by Napoli, by Roma. That's okay because you have done your job. Again, 12 to 17. You've done your job to develop the players. What happens here all the time is that, of course, we are in a collegiate system. We're in a collegiate and basically high school system, right? So as of that, the athlete is going to choose a school not only because that's good water polo, but also because of education. Okay, so that means you're gonna. I'm gonna go to that school, but that's a really good school. I like the idea of being a smaller school. I like the idea of it's more, you know, smaller classrooms. So there's all kinds of things that can help. 
And that is pretty hard for us to deal with because the high schools and the colleges, education is going to rule that. Yeah. But on the club side, I am not in favor of a bunch of tiny little clubs. I, I don't think that is very healthy. That's one of the reasons why with Beach and Shore, I expanded. I think we need larger clubs that you can basically play against or even that is actually something I thought about it give some, let's say, integrity to each little program, but maybe have them train together. I did that in Italy. Mm. Since Camoli, it being only a town of 3,500, it was very difficult for us to have more than, let's say, 14, 15 kids at the team. We were very good. We won all national titles in four years, 16, 18, and 20, all. Okay, But how do we train? Yeah. So what I did is I talked to a couple other programs. They're the same way, like Saudi, Boliasco, you know, some of the guys right in the area within, let's say, a 10, 15-minute drive. And we say, okay, on Tuesday, we're going to Lavagna. On Wednesday, we're training Boliasco. On Thursday, so what happens is that just being in my pool, you know, we would go one time to their place, one time to their place. So we created more training. Yeah. And then we created a good camaraderie with the coaches. And what was even better is that we created also an avenue for the referees, that is a very important part. What they would do is that they would contact us and say, hey, can three of us come in and like referee each quarter and then you guys can make some comments for us? Again, it's a win-win situation. Yeah. The kids are getting great training. The coaches are having coaches you know, basically growing as a professional. And the referees are there. Yeah. And so I think maybe that's what we should do here. We did this when I was at Wilson. We used to train with Harvard, San Clemente, Newport, mm -hmm. Corona. As you remember, I did not go to tournaments. People forget that. Yeah. I never went to U.S. water polo tournaments during my times at Wilson. I basically just created training sites where I would go to San Clemente and play eight quarters at that time. We'll go to Newport and play eight quarters. We'll go to Harvard and play eight quarters. Because to me, I can coach. I can teach. Yeah. Where in a game, I'm winning by a bunch or yeah, I'm losing by a bunch. I mean, I'm just sitting there like a game is over. I'm like, okay, guys, well, let's go get somebody to eat and come back. And I'm wasting my whole weekend. Yeah. I'll prefer to go ahead and say, hey, Harvard Westlake, with Corso was there. Of course, with Johnny was CDM and Bill, of course, that we all miss. Yeah. Uh, and Newport, hey, we're going to be there from 8 in the morning to 2 in the afternoon. Oh, my God. It was just the best training ever. Yeah. You know, or maybe sometimes we're doing three. So we'll say, Jimmy, Foothill would come, San Clemente would come, Wilson would come, and we do a three-way. It was quality. Yeah. No, and I mean, that's where I'm having a problem of these tournaments. They become money makers, okay? And it's okay. I'm not against anybody making money. <laughs> no, no. But they course. become money makers, but the quality is not there. And I think it's really burning out in the long run. So I understand the problem that we have here because we're all competing with each other. But if we want to grow, we need to continue to compete with each other. But let's do it in a way that benefits all of us and not exclude anybody. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So let's let's um, you brought up Wilson and I, you know, me being a high school coach, you know, I remember you at Wilson. Um, I, I remember those those heydays. The mid 90s really was was the, the time that was just I mean, I mean, do you consider would you consider yourself or your program to be the best program ever? Yeah, I, I think we, not necessarily for, like I said, I never measure things by championship, but I measure things for how many athletes we turn out. I mean, if you look at it, we had about eight Olympians. 
I've got about 40 national, you know, all Americans in college that came out of those programs. And what I am always most proud of, we also won seven academic titles. So basically our kids were good kids, uh, kids that until today, I still see them all, all the time. Yeah. And of course, now we have a group of young kids now that they're, they're <laughs> they sons and daughters. <laughs> Let me tell you, I mean, it could be a resurgence pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think that was the best part of it. I think yeah. we had a, a great uh, run. You know, I think definitely, you know, of course, you had, this, let's say, the modern day program lately, but you also have had a Harvard Westlake had a program for a while. Mm-hmm. Newport had a great run in the 70s. Downey had a great El Segundo. So yeah. um, I never like to say, I always taught Tony, I says, you're never allowed to say you are the best. Other people can say that about yeah. you, yeah. but you can never that say sense. that to yourself. Well, being being in that era of playing, you know, I, I saw it from a different perspective. And I, I actually remember, you know, you don't, you maybe don't remember, but how I met you was I was driving up from Irvine to Harvard Westlake to play for you and Corso and doing the shooting clinics, you know, that that's really how I met you. And I mean, I remember, you know, you mentioned it earlier, how you used to break things down and and that's why I kept coming every single Saturday and Sunday. It didn't matter. I just, I I knew I was going to get something really valuable, but I look at those Long Beach Wilson teams and there was just so much, it seemed like there was so much passion with, they're still so passionate about the sport. It's it's insane how passionate guys like Scotty Miller, Albert Garcia, you know, obviously your son, Tony, uh, I mean, Cochran, all, all these different guys that were just really passionate about the sport. It, you know, did you have an opportunity to coach them early on and, and kind of go back, going back to your earlier point about instilling that passion and love for it? Is that what you feel like? You well, did I, for I them? I think it's absolutely that. I mean, well, we, we all these kids were playing nine and unders, ten and unders. And, of course, we had, you know, I had the, the privilege of having a person like Klaus Barth that I yeah. think was the greatest nine and under coach ever. And you know, nobody can even come close to him. So he would give me, he always gave me kids that had big, huge smile on their faces. You know, so that was the best part. And then after that, that's one thing we always said. We don't yell. We're never negative. We mm-hmm. don't say We don't say derogatory terms. The sport is supposed to be fun at that age group. Until you're 12 years old, you should never hear a negative word or a yell ever, mm-hmm. you know, when you are playing. Yeah. Okay, I'm not telling people how to raise their children. Yeah, of course. But I'm saying in the pool, it should always be pleasant, okay? Then from 12 to 17, the kids are enjoying themselves. You know, I, I never believed in training six days a week and when they're nine, 10 years old. Yeah. You know, go do a couple other things. There's yeah. nothing wrong with cross training, you know? So do that and then as you move on you love the sport and then the next thing we did is that I always made sure that like we didn't have a really a captain mentality we had kind of like a team decision you know so I always had like even in, in high school we had a captain but he was actually the captain of the group mm-hmm. in the sense that we had a freshman captain sophomore captain junior captain senior captain gotcha. okay so to make sure everybody talks so Every decision is made by everybody. So they all feel that that's not, they're not part of the program. They are the program. So I feel that that is very important. You know, that's very important for us to be more successful in the past, you know, and continue to have the success. We have to make them love the sport. You know, no parent puts a kid in a sport, at least they shouldn't, because they want to put a kid in because they want them to be an Olympian. Yeah. I never did that. Yeah. You put a kid in because you want them to have fun, be active, make great friendships. That's why you should do it. And then when they're about 13, 14, they get ready to high school, 
that's when they start saying, you know what? I mean, you're going to be serious about that. Yeah. So that's why I don't think that results are that important at that age group. So at Wilson, we were blessed. We had a very good understanding about with the parents that don't get involved. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I want the parents to be in the stands telling they love their children and clapping. And that's it. Yeah. You know, uh, just like I don't tell the doctor what to do. Don't tell me what to do. Yeah. Okay. I know what I'm doing. If I'm not doing a good job, you can fire me. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. But no interference. So we had great parents and they made it for a very good environment. I'm still friends with all these parents. Yeah. I'm still friends with all my players. Uh, I still see them all. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the biggest compliment because as a coach, personally, you know, you're always going to rub someone the wrong way. You know, you're always going to, a player is always going to feel like you took something away from them or you didn't give them an opportunity. Um, I think that's unavoidable, but you know, looking back all those years later to, to have that love, my wife actually is her cousin is the Vitito family, uh, Kyle Vitito. Kyle, of course. And um, they still talk about, you know, we talk water bowl. They still talk about you. You know, he, he was there in the late 90s. So, um, so you know, going from Wilson, you then ended up at Long Beach State. Um, and you went to college at Long Beach State, correct? correct? Yeah. So you went to college at Long Beach State and then you became the coach at Long Beach State. Um, and there was one moment in particular that I wanted to touch on with Long Beach State. And that was when Tony had to make a decision to go to college and he chose Stanford. And I'll never forget, um, I was driving down with Chris Tramontano and the Tramontano brothers, Nick and Chris, and they were talking about, hey, Tony's, you know, he's got to make a decision. And they were in the mindset of, hey, you never know. I mean, he can come to Long Beach State and, you know, do something great here. What was that experience like as a dad? I mean, you're a coach, but you're a dad first. So what was that experience like? Um, yeah, I, I've always tried to, both with my Tony and Cassie, I always tried to separate myself as dad as coach. Like, uh, you know, whenever the game would finish, for example, I would, on the drive home, all I would say to Tony is, I love you, and that's it. Or Cass, I love you, that's it. I wait until they ask the questions. I want them to, to understand that I'm a father and I'm a coach. Okay, so when I'm with, and the father figure, don't talk to me about this stuff. Yeah. Okay. So when that decision came up, it was the same thing, uh, you know, with Cassie also. Um, I told Tony, very simple. I would always be your dad. Okay. I would always be your dad. Mm -hmm. uh, if you ever have any questions, you just call. Make the decision based on where you think you can go further in your academic career. And I said, because the water polo wise, he says, you know what? If you're lucky... You will have a 10-year career. He ended up having 20. But, you know, you have a 10-year career. It could end. Uh, any, but it ends any time. And like I said, you know, you have had you have had some great coaches already. You know, you played for Monty. You played for, you know, John Vargas. You always, you know, respected Coach Barnett, Corso, mm -hmm. and everybody else. So you've you got a pretty good group of people that you can always call and talk. Coach Dante, yeah. you know. Uh, so make your decision strictly on the environment. Okay, and education. So he visited, you know, the four schools, um, and he made the decision. He says, you know, that I felt really good here. He's like, it wasn't yeah. as many people, and and I felt really good. You know, my talk with the professors went well. 
Uh, I felt that I had a lot in common with some of the athletes here, you know, because it, he wasn't really recruited by water polo athletes. You know, he was recruited by the other athletes. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I felt really good about that. And he says, so I decided to go to Stanford. And I said, great, great yeah. choice. Yeah, I mean, how could you say you no? Know, so, but, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people say, yeah, but you, yeah, I, I probably could. I probably would have said, no, you have to go to Long Beach State. But that means I'm using my coaching to force my child. Yeah. That's wrong. Yeah. You know, uh, as a father, I should support his decision and guide him, not give him the direction, you yeah. know. So and that's he why made you, a great decision. Yeah, and that's why you guys, I would assume your relationship is so strong now. I mean, I see pictures on Instagram and all, you know, all these other things. And, I mean, you guys are close as close can be. I, I'm coaching my son now. I'm coaching 12 and under. So, mm -hmm. I mean, the question really is, it, it's advice for myself. I'm sure there's other people listening too, but... You know, it's tough to coach your kid. It's not an easy thing because you really do have to separate it. And I do the same. We don't talk about water polo in the car. We just go. And and it's it's kept our relationship really strong. So, um, you know, from Long Beach State, I mean, your career is so long. I, I, and I know you don't have a ton of time. But, you know, from Long Beach State, you ended up coach. You were assistant coach at Nas on the national team in 2004. Okay. And then you became the head coach mm -hmm. for a, for a brief stint, and then after that you went to Italy, and then you kind of went from Italy to China, and and so, you know, looking back on the USA experience, what what do you how do you feel? How do you look back on that experience coaching USA and and being yeah, involved? With I, that? Mean, I have amazing friends in the sport. I don't really have you know. I mean, a lot of people have you know problems with people. I don't have a problem with anybody. Yeah. Uh, I'm always willing to help, as you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're here on the podcast. <laughs> I'm always willing to help. And, and I mean, I, U.S. water polo for me, particularly USA water polo, my best friends are USA water polo people. Uh, the athletes that I have met through my career has been, you know, keeps me young. Yeah. Uh, they, I still see almost all of them, to be honest. I yeah. mean, I see either through a phone or conversation or email or they're all my Facebook friends and we still stay in touch and... I know their kids, and yeah. uh, you know, so it's a tremendous positive. Yeah. I have no negativity to say. None. I actually remember you, and one of the reasons why I'm bringing this up is because over the last four years here in, in the U.S., we've gone, as you know, we've gone through this like youth movement, and you know, trying to bring up the youth, putting them in positions of of really high competition. My experience, or and my thought as a young coach, was that you were really one of the first people to look in the youth movement and really, I mean, you were at my high school games. I remember you watching Caleb Hamilton mm -hmm. at Northwood high school, sitting in the stands. Oh my gosh, Ricardo Azevedo is here to watch you play. You know, you were looking at high school athletes and I'm sure you're doing some of that stuff in Brazil. Now looking at the young, the youth, um, you know, how valuable was that? And, and you feel like, we're still doing that or you think we're kind of gotten away from it a little bit? Um, I think we've got away it a little bit. You know, I, I like the idea before and we're doing my stint with the national team when I used to go up north every every week. I used to go on Tuesday night and stay with Larry Rogers or any friends down there, Don McQuaid or, yeah. or Kirk or anybody. I mean, so many of my ex-players and ex-good friends are yeah. there. And watch. I just think that the, it's not just a question of you watching the mm -hmm. athlete the athlete knows that somebody cares yeah. to come in and watch me 
There's a reason why in basketball and football they have scouts everywhere. It's not just to see what the athlete does, but to understand that as an athlete, you must always be ready. Mm -hmm. So I felt that the best way I could serve the sport is basically not just stay in Southern California, but in Southern California, in Northern California. I mean, I went to Texas, Oregon, Washington, Connecticut, Florida, New Mexico, because if they see that the national coach or the junior coach is there watching you, hey, I have a value. And I think in today's society, I think personal value is an all-time low. You know, we have very little value of ourselves. Um, I think that's the what we need to do more. I don't think we're doing enough. I don't think you can sit there and wait for the athlete to walk into your pool. Yeah. I think you need to have more of a relationship with the age groups through their clubs, through programs that show quality. Um, I need athletes need to, I know U.S. Water Polo is talking to, to 6-8 with Maggie and Tony mm-hmm. about the quantitative system. Create a metric. Create a situation where the athletes can say, hey, you know what, I'm as fast and I'm as strong and I can throw the, the ball as fast as that guy, mm-hmm. but that guy has better legs. That guy's a little quicker. I wonder how I do compared to a guy in Italy. And so if we have these kind of things, these kind of tools that involves everyone in particular, you know, it yeah. involves all the athletes, involve all the coaches, involve the whole program, that's a winning program. Yeah. And I, I, I do believe that we need to spend more time with that. Uh, and I think the athletes deserve that. And I think once you do that, I think parents will also notice that my kid's in, in good hands. Most of the parent, most of the time, parents sometimes get too involved. And as you said, as a coach and a dad, I always try when I used to go watch Tony play basketball and baseball, I try to just sit in the furthest place possible yeah. and just watch. Yeah. I just want to watch. I don't want to comment. I don't want to talk. I mean, I don't want to get into confrontations. Yeah. I just want to watch my kid. But I felt that he was in good hands. So maybe I think as we create more of a family environment with kids being seen and coaches more involved and since coaches talking to other everybody, it's just we're not enemies. We're adversaries. Yeah. It's a big difference. Yeah. And uh, once that happens, I think that that can create a big growth because we have the numbers. We have money. We have the numbers. We have the pools. Yeah. So why are we not making the next step? Well, I, I think, you know, just, and, and maybe you've thought of this before, but I kind of am dissecting it out of what you're saying. I mean, what a great idea to have scouts. What a great idea to just have coaches that are, you know, they're not on the national team staff, but they're people out there watching. Hey, do you see this kid over here? Hey, do you see that kid? That would create a value. That would create, hey, I'm not here on the weekend for no reason. I'm here because... You never know who could walk on the pool deck, you know, and you're you going to games early on. That's like kind of like the old school version of what your son and Maggie Steffens are doing right now. I mean, you're going in and you're evaluating and you're saying, okay, how does he stack up or she stack up against this player or that player? I don't see that as much, you know, like I do see it. And this is not a knock on anyone at all. I I mean, obviously, yes, uh, but, you know, I love seeing Adam Krikorian at CIF semifinal. Sure. I mean, he's standing right now. I hate that we lost, but the fact that he was there, you know, maybe he was just there to watch a good game, but he was there looking at something. There sure. was something involved with him. Looking, and I, and 
it's it's unfortunate that maybe it's too few and far between. You know what I mean? But I've seen him at multiple games throughout sure. my career here at Olu, multiple. And I think that's really valuable. So Yeah, like, for example, one of the first things I did with the scout system, as you just named, I named 16 scouts in Brazil. I have 16 scouts in Brazil. They're not in the national staff, but they are 16 scouts that I rotate one of them in national trips. Hmm. Okay? And all these scouts' job is when they see a good kid, you know, make the comment, keep an eye on it. If it's good enough, film it. And if it's good enough to be called, we'll call them. Gotcha. Okay, so there's a three phase, you know, so he sees it first, then he tells the coach of the area first, and then that comes to me, you know, and then as the coordinator of everything, basically I'll say, bring him. I have enough money. Bring him those two here. Bring that one there. Last year, for the first time, I didn't call 18 for tryouts. I called 72. Oh, my gosh. And then I increased the coaches to instead of having three coaches, I made nine coaches. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, see, and that's something that's missing from our ODP system. I've never been called and said, hey, I got this kid from your club. What do you think? Exactly. I, that No one's ever called me and said, and I was an ODP coach. I was a zone coach, you know? And so, like, I understand the pressure that they sure. go through and everybody's watching them and the parents. But why hasn't any coach who's evaluating a 14-year-old called me and said, hey, you spend every day with this kid. What, what do you think? Today, I just had a situation where we're choosing a team to go to the South America Championships in April 9th to April 14th. I might see you there, by the way. (laughs) In Chile. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, so we're choosing an 18 and under team because that's what it is. It's uh, born in 2001. You know, so we have actually the tryouts this weekend. We have a three-day tryout where I bring in as many. And then we have another training, you know, four days later. And then another training right before we leave because I've increased quality training. Shorter time, more quality. But on this first one, I just had one of my scouts say, hey, I was at a program up in the interior of Sao Paulo, and I saw this little lefty that, man, he is looking good. I mean, last year wasn't that good, but he grew like four inches, you know, in one year, and he's really shooting the ball well. He writes me. I write to the coach, and I say, hey, I think we should bring this lefty and take a look at it. Is that okay with you? Because I believe in all this conversation, right? We must respect each other. And then he goes, yeah, let's take a look at it. So he's in. So this happened on a daily basis. We want people to tell us that kids are doing well. I mean, how critical is that? <laughs> it's To me, it's just, I think it's a lot better to have 32 sets of eyes than yeah. just two. Yeah, no, I mean, and you know what? You you just brought up but something that we talked about before we started recording. Um, you know, the kid grew four inches and, and we had a really interesting conversation about size. Are we limiting ourselves here in the U.S. based off of these standards that, may not be translating to good players around the world. Well, I, I'm just glad that Istiardi and uh, Yedishov <laughs> and uh, Kevin Robertson and Figaro and Tony played in back then because in today's game, I don't think they will be given a choice. I don't think they will be given a chance. And unfortunately, I don't look at the size. I mean, in certain positions, you're going to look at the size a little bit more than others. Yeah. You know, you're gonna, not going to put a 5'8 goalie, you know. Yeah. But... Or two meter man, exactly. But you know, at the same time, you look at two meter man. I mean, it, I mean, if I don't, if I'm not mistaken, since I was there, I mean, Spain won the gold medal in 1996 with Jordi Sanz as their center, and he was five eleven. Yeah. Or people forget that Alessandro Calcaterra is six foot tall, might be six foot wide, <laughs> but he's six foot tall. Yeah. So again, height should not be a determining factor. It should be one of the factors. But you should look at the kid's speed, intelligence, heart. Um, ability of learning, 
uh, quickness today is becoming a paramount to yeah. the sport. Uh, I was last year both in Serbia and in Hungary for the World uh, ATN Under Championships. And with the new rules and with this new idea, and these are ATN Unders, look who won. Look how the teams are doing well. Yeah. In the men and the women's side, Spain, Greece, Italy, you know, and on the men's side, also Serbia. But not necessarily huge guys. Yeah. I mean, you look at the guys, the top guys in the tournament, there are guys anywhere between six foot, 5'11", 6'2", 6'3". That, that would say the average, the average Greek team does not go over 6'1". Yeah. And, yeah. and yet they want to go medal. Yeah. You know, the Spanish team the same way. The Italian team the same way. Sure, they have one guy or the other. Doesn't say that you do not have a big of guy course. either. Of course. But I don't think... Stefan Curry is not the biggest guy out there. Yeah. You know, but it, you're going to say, no, I want a guard that's at least 6'5". No, you don't do that. If the guy's a great shooter, he's a great passer, he's intelligent, plays great defense, tremendous quickness. PQ is incredible. PQ, power and quickness. He has great relationship with PQ. That's a player that you can really work on. Yeah. Because he's going to be better in your zones. He's going to be better on your counterattack. He's going to be better in creating movement on the drives. Now, if I got a guy that's six foot eight and he can do the same thing at the same level, then that's a different no brainer. situation. Yeah, that's no a brainer. no brainer. Yeah, for sure. But I don't think it's a good idea to limit anyone by high size, age. I could care less about that stuff. You're good, you're good. Yeah. You know, and if he's the best player, go ahead. Now, I would say that coaches, if we continued with our friendship of coaches, that as they are developing their athletes, it's, there's no difference that I did with Tony or with Albert or, you know, with Cochran. I could have made them centers in high school. Mm -hmm. They would have scored a 1,000 goals. But I knew there weren't going to be centers in college and definitely would not be able to play centers in at the international level. Yeah. Shin, another one. So why not have these kids face the cage instead of play with their back to the cage? I've seen a lot of athletes that I will not mention that had amazing high school careers as centers but when they went on to college, had to become field players and you know attackers, or it couldn't adjust. Yeah, it's four years of your life. So I think coaches need to be. Again, I understand about the pressures of winning. I understand that very much, but I don't know if I would ever sacrifice an athlete to win a game. Yeah. I, luckily, I've never had to, but that would be very hard for me to say. Well, you know, you're going to be the best driver in the world, but for us, you're going to play center for four years. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I create a better system. Maybe yeah. I create a system of post-ups or, you know, like the one year when I didn't really have a center, when I actually put Jeff Nesmith on the position two and have him be the center, so I reverse the offense. So sometimes you got to do creativity. Yeah. You have to be creative. Yeah. Um, but you can't be creative without if you don't teach the skills that's for them to be able to do all that's these cool. different things. You, you don't have the option to be creative if they don't have a versatile amount of skill, which... I mean, from I think from what you're saying is that like it's really hard to build that if we're driven by winning at the ten and under level or the twelve and under level, and that should not be. Yeah, and that should not be. I I I, I like, for example, I know that in countries like you know, mo mo a lot of the really good water polo countries like Serbia, Croatia, Montenegro, Italy, Spain, ten and unders. There's no score. Yeah, there's no score on ten and unders. Do you do not put a. Parents would always know the score. Yeah, of course. But there's no score posted. Yeah. Okay? So the ball is even put in play at the goalie position. Okay? Because it doesn't matter 
you don't care. You don't want a nine-year-old going home saying, I lost. I'm a loser. Yeah. I don't want that. I want that nine-year-old guy. We had so much fun today. Yeah. yeah. Man, I had this almost score the one time. Yeah. Or I, I did that new shot. I want him to remember that number. I want him to remember what he went through. And then with 12 and 14, 12 and 13 around that age, 14 is already moving into high school, mm. but at 12 and 13, Make some changes, like say no five-meter shot. So you have to learn how to put the ball into the center. Yeah. Or let's just say no shot can be scored in the first 15 seconds. So you have to work with a team. So you don't have the one guy. You have that one guy on your team at 12 years old that's six foot four, yeah. and he's huge, and he's just going to sit there taking five meters all day long, and you're going to win the game. Yeah. And what about the other little kids? What do they do? They're watching. They're watching. And so I, I – I, I really believe that we, we're driven by competition. We know that. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with competition. There's nothing wrong with winning or losing. But there's a time for it. Yeah. And I think at that age group, I, I work with my grandchildren right now. They've already played water polo. They play basketball. They play baseball. They're doing all these kinds of stuff. But I, I never say, did you win? I never ask that question. Yeah. I never ask that question. Did you win? Did you lose? I go, did you have fun? What did you learn today? You know, if that is more used on that 9, 10, 11 years old, and then the 12 and 13, yes, you have to get a little more serious. But I still, I just eliminated in Brazil the 13 and under national championship. There is no more. Wow. I don't want a championship at that age. Who's a national champion at 13? Yeah. Kid has been playing for a year as a national champion. That kind of takes a little bit of the, let's say, value yeah. of a national championship. So I said, no. We have festivals. We have regionals. Yeah. You know, and let's just leave the national championships for the little bit older when you're 16, 15, 16, 18. That, that's fine. Yeah. But when you're a little guy, you should just get out there with a bunch of little things in your hand and having fun and make a bunch of friends and the coaches smiling and teaching and being great professionals. That is going to sell the sport tenfold. Yeah. And that's why you have, in particular, you know, not everyone, but the guys that I know have been playing on the senior national team since they were 15 years old. I mean, that's passion. So that was instilled in them from a, a, an earlier period of time, you know, I mean, and, and through a different way, you know, not through you, but passion is what's going to keep, you know, we have people who do one Olympics and then quit, or we have people who get to a certain point and then they quit. We don't have that longevity that we need to be sustained. Like you said, really early on, you know, the other countries have 30 year olds in the pool they've been playing for a really long time, you know, like how do we compete with that? So, well, we have 30, if I'm not mistaken, I think we have 31 or 32 three-time Olympians in this country and only three do not have a medal. So there's a definite relationship into playing more than one Olympics and getting a medal. Yeah. Okay. So if you look at the percentage of Olympians in America with medals, okay, 27 out of 31 yeah. have got medals. Yeah. Okay. Then if you go to a two-time Olympian, and all the four-year-old, all the four-time Olympians all have medals. And then if you go to the two-time Olympians, that number drops to around 50%. Wow. But if you go to the one-time Olympian, that number drops below 10%. Because it takes time. Yeah. It takes time to learn. But a lot of times in the U.S., we are driven, again, by competition. So we, we got to get to work. We, we don't have professional leagues here. Uh, we, we do not have the ability to continue with this love. Look at the success of the 84 team or the 88 team. Look at the success of the 2018. There's a reason for that success. 
84 team stuck around because in 1980 was a boycott. Yeah. So that was an older team that stuck around, got the silver, stuck around and got the silver in 88. Look at the 2008 team, same thing. Because of the change that they had in 2004, a lot of those guys came back. Bales came back, Bobby yeah. came back, and all these guys came back. Those guys were together for a long time. Those guys were together with the last cuts of 2004. They were the last cuts of 2000. Merrill was the last cut of 2004, came yeah. back. So if you look at that, there's a lot of that, hey, we're a team. You know, we, we played just because I love the guy on my right and I love the guy on my left. Yeah. So you saw a lot of that on those teams. What I noticed is a problem since 2012, 2016. You see a lot of kids that you say, hey, we're going to be good. I mean, America would always have great athletes. Yeah, of course. I never worry about that. Of course. But you have these great athletes, and then I go like, well, you know, so-and-so quit. What? We have an Olympian left-handed that's six foot seven that played in 2016 that doesn't even play college ball anymore. I know. And then we have, you know, kids that basically some of our top scorers, you know, that don't play, played in 2016 as a 21-year-old that don't play anymore? I mean, what's happening? I mean, why are they not playing? Yeah, that's a big, big Why problem. are they not playing is the key. I mean, where, where? I mean, I can put a team of 15 guys under the age of 27. <laughs> They're, like, amazing. Yeah. But none of them play anymore. So they don't play because they need a job. So maybe we should work on having some money for these guys to, you know, continue yeah. maybe some money and do some money for them. Maybe... Spend less money in the administration and put a little more money on athletes. Yeah. You know, maybe we need to create a better system where they don't have to be here. You know, they don't have to work out every day, but they can work out a certain periods of time. You know, maybe create more seasons. You know, maybe become more seasonal. There's always a, there's always a solution. You know, of course. I think we just, we worry too much about the problem. We should worry about the solution. Yeah. Well, I mean... As I wrap this up, and like I said, I know you have a, a lot to do here. Um, who are your biggest influences in coaching? You know, like, and even now, who are you? Who do you reach out to, or who do you look up to? You've coached with some amazing coaches. Um, I've been very blessed. Yeah. You know, um, growing up in Brazil, I had a, the pleasure of working with Kemeny's father, Fetcher, that I consider to be one of the greatest coaches. Uh, Sergey Markovich, the father of Spanish and Mexico water polo. And when he coached Mexico, Mexico won the Pan Ams. Let's put it mm -hmm. that way. It eliminated the U.S. from the Olympics in 76. Wow. And Markovich, to me, is probably the most prolific fundamental coach I've ever seen. Uh, these guys who were early in my career made a big difference for me. Um, my coach in Brazil that also pushed me, we Edson, you know, really important. But after I came to the United States, I was blessed. I mean, I was able to be around coaches like Bob Horn, uh, Monty Naskowski, Ken Lindgren, Pete Coutinho, Ted Newland, and I learned from all of them. Mm -hmm. You know, all of them have something that it could offer. And that's a time where we were competitors in the pool, but these guys, there was also at the end of the Congress or at the end of a meeting, I mean, we're all sitting over there just having fun too. And I think we do miss that. You know, there was more of a commitment. And then internationally, I would say, obviously, you know, Rodko, amazing, an amazing general of the game. You know, I mean, I learned more about the running the game from him that, you know, a lot of people. Um, and working around with some of the international coaches that I've seen over the years, like Staminich, amazing coach that basically put Greek in the map, yeah. Greece in the map. Um, so I've been blessed. You know, I think all of them are still very important. 
uh, who I reach for right now and or like either being reached by someone yeah. or am I reaching by someone is that I still talk to Radko a lot. We're good friends. As you know, my daughter works at Radko yeah. in Italy, so they see each other every day. So Radko is still somebody that I talk to and I like talking to. Uh, Dejan Savic from Serbia is a good friend too, and I do believe a lot of his, uh, I, I like some of his new ideas. Um, so those are the guys I kind of talk to. Uh, Yanni Norris from Greece is also a great source of information. Um, but now it's more fun in a sense that I don't need to reach them to, you know, like I said, to ask something is more like validate something, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, and it's also always great to see these guys and we, we sit there and we have some great conversations and we always have fun. Yeah. I think the difference between your generation, I mean, the coaches you named obviously are legends. I mean, if anybody hasn't heard of the coaches that you named then they got to look them up like right now. Um, but the difference is, you know, if you were to ask me, who do I call? There's not very many, yeah. you know, there, you know, there's not very many. Um, and, and that's unfortunate. I wish I could. I wish I could reach out. So, well, you know, I, I remember, just, I'm sorry for interrupting. No, I, mean, I remember like, for example, like in the seventies, when I really started thinking about like, maybe, you know, I really like to do this. I want to become a better player and I want to grow as a coach. I can remember going to watch practices at Belmont Plaza, or even at Long Beach City College with Monty and Ken and Bill Barnett and, and then I remember looking on the deck, and there would be like 20 of us sitting there. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was all these coaches sitting there. And we're all like, you know, I mean, I, I look at it. I, I look at all the high school coaches I grew, you know, I grew up with. I mean, I look in the deck, and there's a Rich Corso. I look at the deck, you know, there, there, the, you know, CDM coach, or there's a Sunny Hills coach. You know, yeah. I mean, Jim Sprague is filming the thing, and you know, I mean, everybody was there, and it was a very open. I mean, I can remember. I remember one of the greatest moments for me ever was, you know, I was probably a 20-year-old, like, coaching little 10 and unders or yeah. whatever. And Monty, and I'm sitting on the stands like this, and Monty goes, you know, goes like this to me, and I went down there, and he goes, hey, you know, uh, we're going to be working on some counterattack here. Can you do some, sh you know, sh working some shooting on the, you know, on this guy over here? And I'm wow. sitting over there and going like, <laughs> okay, Monty. Yeah. And, of course, the guy is about the same age as I yeah. am, you know, and I'm sitting there and going like, okay, Monty. I mean, that was the greatest gift ever. Yeah. means that, you know, what a wonderful gesture that you basically are paying off somebody that you see now every day at your practice learning, see what he can do. Yeah. And that's what I've tried to instill over the years. I have always been very open to bring coaches on deck. Yeah. I don't believe in secrets. People ask me all the time, Coach, can we film? Sure. Why not? Yeah. Coach, can you tell me how you run your six? Sure. Why not? I mean, we should be good because we work at it. Yeah. Not because we keep it a secret. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. I think I think I've had great mentors and I still have a lot of people that I like to call and just like validate and uh, you know, have fun. I hope this inspires people. I, I mean, it's inspiring to me to like reach out because I mean, I do have access to, you know, the college coaches and really good high school coaches and we're friends. I mean, we we know each other. I mean, Adam Wright and I are he's one year younger than me, you know, and he's doing great things at UCLA, you know, sitting in on those practices. But um, that leads me to my last question. Um, <clears throat> what advice would you give to a young coach um, starting out uh, in high school or college or wherever? What, what would you tell them? You know, I have a young coach right now that I'm working with and the advice that I gave this young coach is very simple. Broad new horizons. Don't limit your thinking, you know. So don't think you know everything because, you know, I still learn every day. Yeah. Um, study it. 
Become an expert on the sport. Become a student of the game. You know, don't limit yourself with just knowing the physical training or the mental training or the tactical training or the technical training. Just as broad as you can, number one. Number two that I think is very important, travel. Understand that there's a world out there. Mm-hmm. Don't get caught up in your little community and not grow. Hook up with a club. Go to a different place and ask to travel. Hey, can I go? Can I go? I, I, I'll pay my own way, but can I, can I go to the championship and watch? Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, that's a great investment. And then third, the more, more important, integrity is an important part of our game. Okay? So understand how to deal with people. Communication skills are huge. Some athletes, you're going to put your hand on their shoulders. Some athletes, you got to talk from further away. Some athletes, you have to change your method of listening, you know, to how they're going to listen. So being aware of what you need to do is, you know, and how you're going to communicate. There's a lot of people out there that know a lot about water polo. But how does that translate to the athlete? So these are the three things. I mean, become a student of the game, travel, Learn as many different things as possible. Don't make your decision. Don't say I'm 23 years old and I already know everything. Yeah. Because you don't. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm 63, and like I said, I mean, I just learned something a couple of days ago, just reading a website. Yeah. You know. So, um, student of the game. You know, travel, but more important than anything else, learn how to communicate, because I always say that we're only coaches during the game. At practice, we are teachers. So we have to learn how to teach the game so I can coach the game. And that's why over the years people see why you always just sit down so quiet at the bench. And I go, yeah, because if you did your job at practice, I don't need to be jumping around. Yeah. It's already done. So I just need to manage who needs a sub, change the tactics. Once in a while I have to attract their attention. But these are the three things that I would say. Yeah. Well, I mean, Ricardo, this has been an amazing experience for me personally. I mean, it, whether or not we were recording, it didn't matter. You know what I mean? Like I, I've always admired, like I said, what, everything you've done, uh, a lot of admiration for you and your success. So thank you very much for being on the show. It was great it. being here. And like I said, I wish everybody out there stay positive, you know, and let's make the sport grow. Such a great, great sport. Awesome. Thank you very much. You're welcome.